And I'd also like to sort of challenge the notion of energy transition per se, because what we're talking about is more related to thinking about meeting one of the biggest global challenges, which is to avoid a two degree temperature rise, right? And so if you're thinking about it in that context, it's not, the solution's not limited to energy, all right? It's limited to anything that produces an emission. And so for us to only call it energy transition, it's sort of selling the whole concept a little bit too short. The Energy and Transition podcast is the first of its kind exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by Locked In Companies and Galtway Marketing. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Energy and Transition podcast. This is your host, Leslie Beyer. Appreciate everybody tuning in today. We have an extraordinary guest. The first guest whose title actually is almost the title of our podcast. So we are going to be so aligned on everything we talk about today. Today, we have the Vice President of Energy Transition at Baker Hughes, Allison Anderson-Book. Welcome, Allison. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks so much for joining. So a little bit about your background. Like I said, you're the VP of Energy Transition at Baker Hughes. You oversee Baker Hughes Energy Transition Strategy. That includes developing new energy products and services that help lower carbon emissions and meet the world's growing energy needs. That is exactly what we've been talking about on this podcast over the past few months um, and I can't wait to get into it with you. Um, before this, I know that you are at the American Geosciences Institute as the executive director. Um, you are a geoscientist yourself by background, yes? Yes, I am. And that comes up in like, it's very clear after a few minutes of talking with me that that's what the perspective that I bring. And, and I only play an engineer on TV, so to speak. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so before that, you were in a number of academic policy and senior government positions, you taught at Georgetown University, you worked in the U.S. Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee um, as the Associate Director of St- Strategic Engagement at BSEE at the U.S. Department of Interior. So um, Allison, thank you so much. I, again, I just appreciate you coming on the show and talking about this. You know, my background in OFS has really just been so eye-opening um, to, it's been crazy just to work with companies like Baker Hughes and see what we're doing to lead the energy transition, how there is such an important role 
for companies that were traditionally involved in oil and gas development to now reach out and talk about how we are uniquely qualified to apply what we know and our skill set and our technology to reach a lower carbon future. And so I just can't wait um, to get into it with you today. So can you just kind of start and give us a little bit of background, um, like we said, on your career path and also just the development of this role um, at Baker Hughes? Well, so so with respect to career path, uh, my career path is a little bit non-standard, and I, I actually think that's why uh, I think about energy transition like in a big worldview. So so oftentimes I hear from people that say, "Well, this this is all new to me, right?" And when you think about the concept of energy transition, it should be new because the world's never been through an energy transition. And and I'd also like to sort of challenge the notion of energy transition per se, because what we're talking about is more related to thinking about meeting one of the biggest global challenges, which is to avoid a two degree temperature rise, right? And so if you're thinking about it in that context, it's not, the solution's not limited to energy, all right? It's limited to anything that produces an emission. And so for us to only call it energy transition, it's sort of selling the whole concept a little bit too short. And so so energy transition would imply something that we're going to get away from one thing and go to a new thing. But in reality, we're just going to keep adding to the mix like we have. OK, and then layer on technology that allows us to keep a very robust and dynamic sort of energy fuel mix so that people in all parts of the world get a chance to continue to have power and evolve along a, a, a sort of a transition path in that regard. While we also work to make other industries less carbon intensive, right? And so I, I haven't yet, Leslie, I haven't figured out what the right term is here to describe that concept, but, um, but it's, it's getting to net concept. zero. Well, yeah. you're right. It's getting to net zero and it's a broader concept than just energy transition. It's definitely not moving away from any one thing to the next. And, you know, you like me were in this industry and I get a lot of feedback and people are like, stop saying energy transition. You know, and I'm like, we have to we have to call it what everyone else is calling it so that we can be a part of it. It is kind of where I come from, basically, on that. You know, I think our our main effort in the industry is really talking about, like I said in the beginning, what our role is in this. And so if we call it something different, we might be talking about something different. And I don't want to be excluded. So it's That's hard. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So finding that that sort of, you know, the common language becomes really important. And and it's so easy in this space to immediately go to a, to a, a part of our vocabulary that excludes whole swaths of stakeholders, because if we use too much energy, energy jargon, it excludes like people in the industrial sector, et cetera. And so, so how we talk about energy transition or more, more broadly getting to net zero. So maybe we're going to frame it today as let's talk about getting to net zero. All right. Cause that's where we're going. That's a so, perfect way to do it. Yeah. Well, so. The pathway to get there uh, from where I come from means you've got to have a perspective on every aspect of, of what we're talking about, and that includes working with different sectors. It includes thinking about how you how do you enable a new set of technologies in a way that, that it's applicable to so many sectors, right? And so so that to me is the lens that we can we can kind of talk about this whole thing today. And that's that's my sort of journey has has given me that perspective, which makes it a little bit more unique. 
Absolutely. And so how do you how do you approach that holistically at Baker Hughes? I mean, when you when you're talking about a cross industry application of getting to net zero, you know, yeah. you, you were a, initially an oil and gas development company. Now you're involved in so many new technologies. What does that look like internally? Well, so I mean, first we've got to uh, got to think about how we frame our own journey. Right. And so I would say that Baker Hughes first started on the path to net zero with um, with the, with the view towards the Paris Agreement, right? And so that was the very first public signal. And it was, I would say, as a company, the really first internal signal. Even though efforts had been underway internally at Baker Hughes for quite some time to do things like voluntarily report carbon emissions and that piece, that, that that's occurred for about a decade. You know, that real deliberate road to get to net zero was established early in 2019. And that's where Baker Hughes stood out. And so we were, we were maybe the first in the sector really to make that, that goal. And now, now it's trendy and, and we have a lot of people who followed suit. It's really, or followed suit to that. It's very good to not be on that island alone because then it shows since we're there and now customers are there with us that we're, we're in this commitment together. And we'll work to find solutions that are in line with each other so that we're all solving the same problem, right? So there's that commitment, okay? But then the next part of, of this is really about um, how are we going to really lay out the, our internal strategy for reduction in a way that also aligns, as I said, with our customer. And so so we're at this phase right now where we, we kind of took a step back as a company and looked hard at ourselves for the 2019 report that we just put out um, that in our corporate responsibility report. And, and in that lens, we, we, we looked at how are we doing and we thought, how do we scorecard better, right? How do we show that we're walking our talk? So we made a big commitment. We then committed to the UN sustainable development goals. All right. And so, so now we've got to show that we're doing it in a really deliberate way. Okay. It's, it's one thing to collect data, but it's, it's better to collect data with intent so that it informs things. And so, so now we have a pretty good picture of where we're at in terms of our performance. And now we're, we're right at that precipice of really upping our game and starting to look at where can we pull the levers on our own journey to net zero. Okay. And so, so we can, we can kind of unpack that a little bit more as, as the dialogue continues. But along that, as we, we think about how do we quantify it, looking at scope one, two and three emissions. Okay. So that's the, the whole sum total from when you start making a product to when you walks out the door and sits in our customers' hands. We want to think about that entire cycle. And that's where we're at really right now in our journey. And then, then, you know, what kind of meaningful goal would we take to the next level? Like, do we still have the right goal? Like net zero for scope one and two emissions. What about scope three? Okay. These are all questions we're asking today. Absolutely. And, you know, when you talk about scope three, we're starting to see more operators touch on scope three goals. I know Oxy just recently um, you know, noted that they're going to have some scope three goals. Uh, Shell, I heard Gretchen Watkins this morning at the, at the Reuters Energy Transition Conference talk about their scope three goals. I mean, that is not only controlling your own emissions, but controlling the emissions of the end user. I mean, that is yeah. a whole different ball game. And to really be able to touch on that and create a tangible goal for people that don't understand what a big deal that is when we talk about one, two and three, it is a huge, huge commitment. It is. It is. It's worth noting, Leslie, that as when 
So let's level set for a minute here on scopes one, two, and three for our listeners. We're assuming that everyone knows what they all are, right? And so people really commit to one and two because these are these are the the operations from day to day that we we have control over. So me as Allison Anderson book, I have control over turning my lights on and off, right? That's so, so if it's related to power, that's that's within my capability. I pay for that. I get that service. Right. I, if I turn it off and I'm not pulling any power, then, you know, th- then that's on me. I've also turned it off. The things outside of my control would be how did that power get to my house? Right. What kind of emissions were used along the way to bring that there? Right. Or 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 the shape of my house, like the manufacturing of the house. And so so there's that user component for scope three. So the scope three piece is really the part that's not in our control as much. Right. And so that's what happens when when for us, our product goes out the door into the hands of the people who are pulling oil and gas out of the ground or or whatever they're using our technology for, maybe looking inside of batteries remotely. There's any number of things that we can do. But there's another part of scope three that everybody forgets about, and that's the scope related to suppliers in the manufacturing of a good. And so for us, this is where we're, we're distinctly different from, from our customer, which produces the, the actual producers of oil and gas, right? And so if you're, you're manufacturing or you're an equipment supplier, the manufacturing process itself, anything that we're not directly controlling in the facility is part of scope three. So when you think about that, that's like a whole other thing. Okay. That is a lot that you've got to really look at. So that literally means that if we're going to take the microphones in front of us, Leslie, where did the metal come from and what were the emissions? Right. And so that's really what we're talking about. So when we say scope three for someone like, let's say BP, they've got what goes in their customers' hands, but also what went into the manufacturing side for the good that we provide them, right? And so so that's our commitment right now is to think about what's really meaningful and how can we take emissions out of the whole the whole thing, right? And so that is a big challenge. In fact, that's a that's a challenge that many companies are thinking about today and, and what to commit to in that scope. It's not just about the customer. That is such a great, um, really explanation of how all that works, because I think there are a lot of catchphrases in all of this. And, you know, it's helpful to understand. So going back a little bit, just kind of to the broader level, um, yeah. when you talk about your 2019 sustainability report, which I saw and I thought was fantastic. You know, what were the core principles that you stuck to on that? How how was that developed and how do you talk about that approach? There's a lot of companies out there that are just now beginning to start sustainability reports. They kind of don't know what to report on. What what were the main broad topics that, that helped you put that together? Yeah, so, so I mean, let's go back to what I said about like collecting data, right? So, so anytime you're committing to something, um, whether it's manufacturing something, reducing your emissions, or just being a good, good human being, how are you going to prove that you've done what you said you're going to do, right? And so, so, you know, how we look at ESG right now, we actually inside the company, it's, it's not really ESG. It maps to, um, planet, people and principles for us. So that's, that's our nomenclature. And so we have our own sort of culture around how we talk about that. And so, 
So, so normally we do put the people first, so it kind of inverts it. So it would be SEG. <laughs> so, uh, so it's people, planet, and principles. Frankly, we put our people first, but the um, but it's a dead heat really between all three. They're all equally important. So, so as we talk about that, we we collect metrics that aren't simply about meeting a, G, a, a GRI or a benchmarking standard. It's it's about what's the data that we want to collect to reflect how we're actually progressing on a journey, right? And so, so say for instance, on, on something like inclusion and diversity, being a big part of that in the social spaces is, you know, we, we're going to perform better as a company with a lot bigger diversity all the way around in, in how we think, right? And so, so we have to think about how to, then do we measure how well we're performing on, on getting different mindsets and, fi- and finding d- divergence in how we think and promoting that as a goal. And so that's a hard thing. So it starts with forming the metrics. And so one of the things that, that I'm really proud that we're doing right now is we went back and we've taken a look and, and have a fresh scorecard on, on how we're going to measure our own success, right? And so, so what you should expect to see from Baker Hughes is a continued evolution of, of how we report being more and more transparent. Okay. So transparency is right at the top, right? We owe it to our, our people and our stakeholders and our investors to show our, our work. Okay. And so that is really what's behind it. But the, but the most important part of what guides our performance on ESG is our corporate purpose. Okay. So, so our purpose is, uh, is very straightforward and it's one of the, the reasons why I came to Baker Hughes. It's, it's in a nutshell, our purpose is to make energy cleaner and safer for people on the planet. And, and that show in our ESG performance is how we're meeting that overall purpose. And it's really important. And it's, it's what uh, gets me excited to get up each day. Even on those days where like, I just need 10 more minutes. I'm like, oh, but wait, there could be some people who need some energy. And that's really an exciting thing to be a part of. I'm not remotely being cheeky when I say that. It's you know, really great. I love the way that that's laid out because that's what makes me positive and passionate about you know, our role in energy transition, we are the ones that can make energy cleaner and safer for people on the planet. That's why we don't have to shy away from any of this, um, why it doesn't exclude us. And so I agree. I'm one of those that, you know, can get real passionate and optimistic about the opportunities um, that all of this brings. And and I think that that's just a great way to lay that out. You know, you, you talk about transparency. I think Transparency is obviously critical when we're in this part of the supply chain, um, transparent across the board, whether that's our emissions or how we govern ourselves or what our, you know, stakeholder relations looks like in the communities where we operate. And I have seen that even in the smaller companies, um, you know, transparency in the supply chain, that's just an increasingly important part of what the EMP companies, our customers, mm-hmm. um, are, are going to want to see. And you may not be publicly traded, but you are going to have to have some transparency on these things, whether you want to be an acquisition target or you want to be attractive um, to, to do your work. So um, how do you all approach transparency in the supply chain? I mean, you have all these metrics. Um, how do you maintain culture and focus on that? This episode of the Energy and Transition podcast is sponsored by Milestone Environmental Services, whose commitment to environmental stewardship and protecting customers, employees, regulators, and neighboring communities make it a leader in the transition to a cleaner energy future. 
Milestone provides innovative, dependable solutions for non-hazardous waste disposal, which helps their EMP partners improve efficiency and environmental performance in the production of oil and gas. Milestone builds strong customer relationships with a deliberate, proven approach that industry trusts to keep the environment safe. Known for its passion for customer service, Milestone strives to exceed expectations in all they do. Far ahead, always nearby, that's Milestone. Well, I'd have to say that we're really starting. We've had some programs that have been in place since before I got there. I should tell tell the listeners here that I've been with Baker Hughes. My my one-year anniversary is in about a week. And, uh, and Happy so, so anniversary. I, yeah, it's, it's a one year anniversary. So, so the, um, so, so coming in, I've been, I, you know, you're in that learn mode and you, you take stock of where you're at and what you see. And so we've had some really great programs in place. Like, like, let me, let me tell you about one, which is a sustain, a sustainability focus for our suppliers. Right. And I'm, I'm avoiding using the shorthand for it just because that's just another piece of jargon that's alienating here. But, but, but suffice it to say, we go in and do risk-based audits on our suppliers. So we have, as you can imagine, since we're a manufacturer, like some really obnoxiously huge number of companies that we work with, right? And I've heard so many different numbers. I don't even, it, I've heard it everything from like 11,000 as high as like, you know, 60,000. And I know it's not 60,000. It's probably somewhere around 50 companies. But the um, in that process, you can't possibly go and see them all. But you need to know that you are enforcing a certain level of standards that meet ESG criteria, right? And so, so what we're thinking about right now is because we've got clear labor policies and other things that we have posted on our website, uh, you know, one is a policy on modern slavery, we, we need to make sure that, that we are um, really showing that, that we're working with good suppliers. And so that's a part of one of the things that we materially uh, updated and changed in the 2019 reporting was, is we posted a little bit more of our work, our supplier audits and, and things like that. Um, we have, we put people immediately on a recovery program if we find anything we, that, that we think doesn't fit the sustainability profile. And so, so th- that's what we have in place. And then going to the next level, I can tell you, we're going to be looking at how do we work then in a screening for how their emissions are? How do we, how do we get them to start thinking about lowering their emissions as well? And, and come to a, a time where we basically incentivize in some way for them to materially lower them to be a part of our supplier base. And so, you know, in full transparency, that's a part of the journey that we're on. And so many other companies are on right now. Mm-hmm. And so thankfully coming in, there was already a really fantastic program in place. But, you know, hopefully people, when they come and see our report year on year, they'll start to see more and more of the findings show up, you know, um, other things that that we do to really be transparent, uh, we we've just been embarking on a really a more deliberate um, quantification of of the emissions of how we manufacture certain key products, and so this is a not an easy thing to do, listeners. Okay, so when you have something, I'm gonna I'm gonna use two. We we have two products that have currently been ISO certified. So so we basically conduct life cycle analysis at a very high rigor. And then we have a third party come in and, and provide the certification for that. So it goes through first a couple checks internally and then, then externally. But what we're trying to build right now is a program that will, where we'll be partnered with customers to go from the cradle to the grave uh, on on how not only as it leaves our gate, 
how does it perform in the field? Were there emissions? Did they have, did we have to service it? What does that look like? So that we, we now know the full life cycle, right? And so, so that's a journey that we started on a, a couple of months ago more deliberately. And we're trying to make that quantification a little bit, um, dare I say less slow. Okay. Because it's hard to get that information. It's never going to be that fast. There are some other companies that, that are, are doing something similar, but, um, for us, as we develop this, we start to promote those products down the line that we've really have a lot of rigor behind. So I'm very excited as we continue to grow that. We do that as well in terms of other things on a, on a customer basis. When people want to know what their emissions are for a certain deployment, we'll come back with an answer in a relatively short period of time. And so my team does a lot of the emissions quantification in an effort to be maximally transparent. That is tough to do, especially in this market environment. I mean, there are, there's no room for everybody's doing five jobs because we've laid off, you know, a third of our teams. And, you know, have you found that difficult? How was that transition? Baker Hughes hasn't always had people focused on this. So you had to, uh, <laughs> you know, brought them on, trained them up. You probably lost a few of them in, you know, in the middle of all the COVID situation. How do you maintain people that can really focus on that full time? Well, so, so, I mean, this is, thankfully, we have a really supportive leadership, I'm going to say, straight off the starting gate, um, whether, whether it's uh, our CEO, Lorenzo Simonelli, or, you know, even, even people who sit in different functions, it, like, for instance, we work really closely with our, our, our digital team to really make sure that we can make things more automated. And so we, we get a lot of support, Leslie, across many of the other functions. We have product companies that are, that are very excited to be able to do this and show that, that this product is less missive than the last iteration, right? And so, so, so one, it comes with having that support. You know, at first, maybe everybody didn't understand why would we want to do this. But then once they realize uh, that customers really want to see this information, then, then people start to ask for it more and more. But the other part is um, we're trying to we're using some existing capacity that we had before and we're adapting it to make it more specific to the Baker Hughes um, products. And so every product, every sub emissions factor that, that you use in that quantification. And so we're doing very deep dives on that. And we have partnerships to help us with that for pulling in outside expertise so that they can work in parallel as we're doing work inside the company. And so those are, those are really great. I also want to highlight something that, what, that I think people wouldn't have thought they were going to get by tuning in today. And that's, uh, we've got a couple of leadership programs, which are pretty amazing at Baker Hughes. And, and one is, is called the Aspire program. And there's another one called Impact. And on our missions team, and I, I think of them as an emissions analytics team, right? So, so they, they help with the macro emissions in, in quantifying scope three, because we have another part of the team that does scope one and two, but the, but what they're really focusing on is how do we develop the capacity so that we both teach a man to fish and give them a fish, okay? And so we're doing that like in real time right now and building the capacity because we're pulling talent out of those leadership programs. Uh, there's a real enthusiasm to be a part of something that, that helps us become materially better on reducing emissions, right? And so, so I currently have, I think, Four people from the leadership program as part of the, the team. And, uh, and, and that's about half of the missions team that does the quantification. And so, um, they're going to 
end their rotation and they'll go land somewhere else where they'll be able to teach another man to fish. And I think that's a pretty amazing way to structure uh, these kinds of initiatives because they go out in the world and it's almost like they're they're sort of an evangelist for life cycle analysis. And that's such a creative way to approach the workforce challenge that we have. You know, we're increasingly, you know, focused on all of these these jobs that require highly technical, you know, all this automation. Um, and so to be able to attract that workforce is important, but also to reskill and retrain and get ours excited about that. I think is is really important as well. I mean, do you have thoughts about how we can better recruit this workforce that we're going to need for, you know, delivering cleaner power to to our planet? Yeah, actually, that's something that so while I don't sit in an HR function, this is something I I think about um, quite a lot. uh, And we're actually working with an external um, an external group to think about this a little bit more deliberately too, probably more than I even realize. From the energy transition side, we're working with an, with an organization that is thinking about just transition and coming in and out of communities. And as, as, um, as we progress in terms of energy mix diversification and, and decarbonizing, uh, diff- in different ways and then getting to net zero. And so, so, so one, you know, um, there's this, there's there there's a real thirst for this as people come out of school right and i think we are um we are very well poised as a company to to really promote a lot of the efforts that we're doing in this area and and so that's part of why you know we get young people coming through uh, young in the career i should say not necessarily in age um to come in and be a part of the emissions work or esg or or whatever aspect of it um the there's 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 a few things that we're doing differently. We're thinking about how how we can market um, roles in a more inclusive way. Okay, and th- and that isn't obviously directly tied to energy transition, but I will say that broader sustainability piece really factored in. And so the um, what I've noticed is we use um, we're using a, a new um, tool called Role Mapper, for instance. And what Role Mapper does is it flags any words that would restrict your candidate pool and thus make it more exclusive and less inclusive, right? And so what I learned in the process of of, of taking, I had posted a job for an ESG role, okay? And I was like, we're going to hit this out of the park. We're going to get so many applicants because people are really motivated. And it was like under 50. And, and I'm like, this is like the, the one of the worst job markets. I thought for sure there would be a ton of people, right? And so you got to think about where you're placing it. How are we interacting with our networks? But then also, what didn't I say that didn't resonate and articulate? Well, it turns out because I had said a certain number of degrees and because I had specified a, a work location, it was really restrictive. And as it turned out, it excluded the females out of the candidate pool. Yes. Wow. And so, so we took that same position description and retooled it using this, this, this software package. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that role got close to 500 in two weeks. Applicants. Oh my heavens. You know, that yeah. does surprise me. Like all of that, you would think that you would knock it out of the park with a job like that because people are so interested, you know, new career, so interested in that transition, um, and sustainability. But then you have no idea that you may inadvertently be 
leaving people out that yeah. those are the kinds of tools I think that will get us to the next level. Um, I think so. And so it isn't just enough that you've got this amazing purpose. You actually start to have to think intrinsically as a sector, have we somehow introduced bias? Okay. Unknowingly introduced bias because this is, this is very much a, a, an energy sector phenomenon, particularly on gender, that it's hard to get a bigger applicant pool. But I got, I, I got to tell you of the roles now that as we go through, I have more women applying than men. Okay. And, and, and that was, that's like a complete difference, uh, complete difference. But I also see such a, a phenomenal diversity in the talent that we're able to pull in as well. And so, so, you know, it's got to resonate on the purpose. We have to reach people in a new way and we have to, as, as a sector, think about making the workplace more flexible, frankly. And I think that's something that the pandemic, that's the silver lining of the that it is in some ways more more inclusive to different people who can work remotely. But at the same time, it does put a burden on people as they're working in the homes and, and dealing with school and child care. So, so we always have to be cognizant of that as we come out of this current worldview. But, but I think yeah. that we will start to see more inclusive work environments for sure, um, which were needed in our space for a long time. So yep. kind of getting a little bit back to the technical piece, you know, we talked about how, you know, y'all view, you view the, the term energy transition as more of like getting to net zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of getting to net zero is a real reliance of, of looking at natural gas like a destination fuel, not just a transition fuel. And, and I know Baker Hughes is very long gas. Do you want to yep. kind of speak a little bit about that and kind of global macro on that and, and how you focus on that at Baker Hughes? Yeah, in terms of in terms of gas is both a both a um, a journey and the and a part of the destination. You know, our focus is really to make sure that we have the 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 net zero kind of solutions that allow that to be kept in the mix, right? So that's going to be everything from making sure that we can stop methane leaks at like a pad as you're as you're in the exploration, making sure that you cut down emissions as you're exploring, developing, and then, then extracting it from the ground and then moving it downstream, right? And so, so there's a lot of the, the, the sort of unintentional venting that, and, and, um, fugitives that, that we can help rectify. So we have something called Lumen Terrain and Lumen Sky, and that's, that's a platform that actually can look and detect, uh, in both fixed and mobile ways of looking at, um, um, methane. Okay. And the resolution is so much better. It's like very precision pinpoint uh, kinds of leaks, which is great because those are quite insidious, actually. Uh, So that's like that's one example. And so then as you start to to get into other areas as as it as you relate to the combustion side of it. Right. Um, You know, even through pipelines, we have a lot of condition monitoring equipment that we can apply to any situation. But you get into um, the point at which you you combust a fossil fuel. And that's where we're developing that sort of next generation of carbon capture and storage. All right. And the utilization part is exciting. But but in the end, if if you don't use it in a way that locks it up, you'll come back to that problem of an emission. Right. So so thinking about. The capture side. So we actually had an announcement recently on um, a compact carbon capture solution that we um, we and a business agreement that we just entered into that we're really excited about, uh, and and that's been picked up by a lot of people. Um, 
So you can kind of go and read about that. So we're looking for ways of taking the overall price of it down because the barriers to market for a lot of the, the net zero solutions that are being cooked up as, as we speak, um, you know, we probably could have deployed them 20 years if the price was right. Right. I mean, this is, this isn't our first day, uh, you know, on the job. These, these are technologies that like Baker Hughes and others have had in development for quite some time. And so carbon capture has been around for a long time. Geologic storage as well. Um, you know, the ability to use hydrogen, same thing. Right. So, so we've been there. Like we've been there for decades working on this. Uh, but, but we also are, are very much acknowledging that to be the solution, it's got to be cheaper. Okay. There's got to be other forcing mechanism and you probably heard it from your other guests, but I'll say it again. We have to make sure that we, we create the market for it. All right. So it's not enough that world leaders say we really want to get to net zero. They've actually got to spend money. They have to commit to it and have follow through in a very reasonable way. Cause if it's just about throwing a big bag of cash out there, it's not going to get the job done, right? You've got to couple that with very smart, deliberate rollout of policy. And so, so that you don't create a situation where you say we're to phase something out. And then the, the thing that comes in that's supposed to replace it isn't ready yet because people don't want to buy it or because you can't get a permit or whatever it is. Right. So, so at any rate, you know, we really are thinking, Leslie, about, um, how to, how to, how to really help with renewables with the energy storage piece. We're thinking about that with natural gas as well, um, how you can use that in a storage kind of situation, carbon capture and storage, hydrogen. Uh, you know, one thing I'd like to say here is that when we're thinking about energy transition, there's an intrinsic modularity with what we're talking about because you can, you can, you can take a lot of this, this tech solution or service and package it and couple it with different things in the energy mix, right? So people talk about blue and green hydrogen and, and, and so, so coupling CCS and hydrogen to natural gas, right? To get that to a net zero framework. And so, so we've got to think in a really innovative and different way than what we've conventionally thought about energy is the end is the name of the game. Let's make the solutions smaller and cheaper. And then we'll create a market. Absolutely. And we have to have policies that will help get us there, as you yes. quickly know. And I'd, I'm interested in your thoughts on how we effectively drive that. And then also, to the extent that the companies that are going to drive these things, our companies are being starved for capital, how are we, how are we going to get there? I you know. know. We, we need the policies, but we also really need to have access to capital. So do you, I'm sure you see those as challenges. Um, but how do you best see the industry being able to um, to navigate that on, on on the policy side, first of all? So so I think um, on policy, you know, every, you know, everybody says things are a challenge, but I'd say it's an opportunity. This is all opportunity space for us. So so, you know, I was on a call today that was a really important call and about getting uh, more broad stake like consensus from an industry perspective on and and the leader of the call said okay guys we have to not be viewed as a part of the problem but the solution right we're solutions providers and everyone was very enthusiastic and that was the first time i heard this diverse group of people agree on something they all agreed that they wanted to be the solution right and so so th the next next sentence out of the leader's mouth was 
So now that we agree to it, how are we going to solve this? Right. And so then we sat down and had a, had a solutions call, which was really great. So he completely pivoted the dialogue away from, you know, like, oh my God, this policy thing is such a challenge to there's real clear opportunity here. All right. And, and we can couple and partner with different, different organizations to get there. And so I think, um, policy, in and of itself isn't, isn't quite enough. There's also got to be willingness from all of the stakeholders that sit at the table who are interested in, in, in getting to the solution space and not always agree. Frankly, the strength of policy, particularly in energy, and I should note having, having functioned in the policy world for about 15 or 16 years now is that, um, the best policy comes out of a dialogue where everybody has skin in the game and compromises. It's not lopsided. And so too often when we think about the energy policy that's out there, you know, one side will say, oh, we don't want any more fossil fuels. And then, you know, maybe maybe like the coal people are like, we hate gas or, you know, and like you've got all these like really polarizing things. But you know what? We've all agreed now that we want to avoid a two degree rise. Okay, and so we've agreed to the hardest part. And so now is the opportunity and we're all going to have to give up a little to gain a lot out of this. Right. And what we gain is public trust and we gain a social license to operate and to continue to operate because we found solutions that are not picking winners and losers. Right. And so so we need very agnostic policy and we need for decision makers and policymakers to be at the table with us. You know, the, the, the voter and the consumer matters. And, you know, there are choices and we've got to really, really be good for all of them. So we're all going to have to compromise. And I know that sounds maybe a little bit preachy, but, you know, PISA has a really big role, uh, you know, in getting to solutions as well and bringing people together for that compromise position. And frankly, I'm really excited about it. There is such great opportunity for our sector here. You know, it, it occurs to me, Leslie, I forgot to say one more thing, and it's, it's one of my favorites, is geothermal. We've been a geothermal kind of company for many, many decades, and I don't think people know that about Baker Hughes. That's why I had to just drop that in. No, I'm glad you did. Well, I was thinking, I can't think of a more optimistic way to end the podcast than, you know, in what you were just saying about really how we're going to approach the solutions. But I could have you on again, and we could literally just talk technology the whole time because we could. we, we've spoken before about all these great innovative things that you guys are doing that, you know, a lot of people just aren't aware of. Um, but I think today was a great start until I can get on your schedule and get you back again. Um, Sounds great. But thank you, Allison, so much for your leadership and for everything that you and your team do to help us really show what we as a workforce are doing to to develop that that next level of energy, that lower carbon future um, and be part of the solution. So thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening Um, download on your favorite podcast platform, Energy and Transition, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.